Well, I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to say it. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes, I'm referring to March Madness. Tonight, the NCAA selection committee is going to release the bracket, which will uh, be for, for this year's tournament. And in the whole wide world of competitive sports, there's just nothing quite like the high stakes intensity that is college basketball in March, compressed into just about three weeks. The tournament begins with 64 teams. You lose, your season's over. It ends with one champion celebrating to the tune of the anthem, one shining moment. But what makes March Madness uniquely enticing? What makes it feel so epic to us compared to other sporting events is the sheer number of inevitable upsets. High, uh, higher seeds defeating lower seeds. Cinderella stories, as we call them. Teams that no one would expect. Toppling lower seeds and then making it to the Sweet 16 or the Elite 8 or beyond. But of course, March Madness exposes just as much as it entices. I mean, it exposes how ridiculous we can be based on how emotionally invested, and I mean emotionally invested, the tears could be because of joy or the tears could be because of sadness, how emotionally invested we can become in what a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old strangers are doing with a ball and a rim. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the season, it really is just a game. But in the story we're going to look at this morning, we encounter another high-stakes, winner-take-all competition. But this one is no mere game. The implications of this one don't just last for a season or a career, but will reverberate into eternity. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This is the, the, the gospel that we are making our way through week by week here at River City Baptist Church. And if I'm doing my job well, then I am going to help explain and apply these passages one after another to your heart. And one thing that's helpful to understand about the gospel according to Mark before we look at our particular passage is that Mark is writing primarily to an audience of Romans. So Matthew is writing primarily to Jews. Luke, a Gentile himself, is writing primarily to Gentiles, that non-Jews. John writes mainly, as it were, to the, to the whole world, but Mark is writing primarily to Romans. That is an audience of people and Christians even who are living under, even suffering for Jesus under the Roman Empire. Hang on to that detail. It will become relevant soon enough. Listen as I read our passage this morning, just two verses, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. 
at once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. I have two points, uh, both of which arise very naturally out of these two verses. First, the Spirit deploys. And second, the devil strikes. The Spirit deploys. We see that in verse 12. The devil strikes. That's verse 13. First, the Spirit deploys. John has, uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John. Remember last week, the heavens were torn open. The spirit descended like a dove. The father pronounced words of approval and affirmation. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And without being able to catch our breath, immediately we read, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. This is why I originally intended to preach both stories together because Mark puts them together. Now, they're also, I think it works to break it up because they are very different stories uh, with very different themes and very different settings with very different moods. And yet, they are vitally connected. The word translated there at once or elsewhere, it'll be translated immediately, shows up in your New Testament 51 times. 51 times in your New Testament, that word at once immediately shows up, 41 of which occur in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is in a hurry to confront us with his central character. And here, like a skilled writer of historical drama, he wants us to not catch our breath between the two passages. He wants us to feel the stickiness of the glue between verses 9 to 11 and 12 and 13. See, we might expect, following the Father's approval, the Spirit's empowering, the Son's public ministry launch, that the next scene would be some kind of celebratory banquet, right? Some kind of reception, something to commemorate the occasion. But no, Jesus doesn't come out of the water and get thrust into fanfare. He gets thrust into the wilderness, into combat, in a war of which the stakes have just skyrocketed. Because John the Baptist and the Jewish crowds and God the Father and God the Spirit were not the only ones observing Jesus' baptism. Satan and all the hosts of hell were watching too. And the significance of what occurred was not lost on them. Satan realized that his former home, heaven, his former king, God was putting him on notice. And he doesn't like this changing set of events. But what's interesting is that it's actually not Satan who's calling the shots here. Look at verse 12 again. It doesn't say, at once Satan lured Jesus into the wilderness. No, at once 
the Spirit sent Jesus. The same Spirit who descended on him in the waters now has an appointment for him in the wilderness. The one who anointed and empowered Jesus for ministry now tests him to discern whether he will use his divine status for his own advantage or whether he will submit to the will of heaven. The Spirit sent him into the wilderness. Oh, beloved, don't assume that a hard circumstance or difficult place that you found yourself in is the design of the devil. Don't give him a promotion he doesn't deserve. He's not that powerful. God's leading, friends, God's leading, right out of verse 12, God's leading does not guarantee easy circumstances. He will lead us just as he led Jesus into places we need to go, even if they are not the places we prefer. Parents, this, by the way, is one of the best lessons that you can drill into your children. Christians do hard things. Christians do hard things. Now, this is counterintuitive, not just to our kids, but to us, which is why it's so hard to instill in them because we haven't internalized it ourselves. And the reason it's so counterintuitive to us and to our kids is because, because it is so countercultural. We live now in an age, unlike any in human history, that has streamlined comfort and convenience. I mean, I get so annoyed when my YouTube video buffers just a little bit. I get annoyed when I have, when there's not a little button at the beginning of the video that says I can skip the ads after five seconds and I have to wait, endure the trial of like 15 seconds of ads. We are weak sauce. We are built weak these days. No wonder we're shocked and thrown off balance when the Spirit has led us not to a table of hors d'oeuvres at a celebratory banquet, but into the desert. But God doesn't send those he's forgotten into hard places. He sends those he loves. If you're in a wilderness, if you're in a difficult place that you didn't ask for, it's a sign that God loves you. And this passage is here to remind you that he's choreographing it from beginning to end, and he's not leaving you there alone, but he's coming along. So remind yourselves and your kids, if you're a parent, that Christians are called to hard places and called to do hard things. Now, of course, we shouldn't be reckless when it comes to physical and spiritual danger. I'm not saying we should be reckless. But you know, danger is no proof that you are outside God's will. Sometimes God leads us right into the valley of the shadow of death 
But the lesson, again, is that he doesn't leave us there and he doesn't say, I'll come get you soon. No, he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death and says, hold on, I'm coming too. I'm coming too. Even when it's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face, I will be there right next to you, helping you, empowering you. When we think about danger, it's easy, of course, right, to think about our brothers and sisters in a place like Ukraine who are in extreme danger but have not been abandoned by their Savior. But, but this also goes for us. In sophisticated, advanced, technologically savvy, peaceful America. Because in this land, unless God intervenes and sends revival, and we pray he would, unless he intervenes, there will be only increasing opposition spiritually and perhaps one day physically to the message that we bear. Perhaps you've heard or even quoted the statement, you are never more safe than when you're in God's will. You are never more safe than when you're in God's will. And I either like the statement or hate it depending on what's meant by safe. Years ago, as I was preparing to move overseas, a few well-meaning believers assured me that I would be kept physically safe because, why? God had called me. He's not going to call you into a place only to endanger you. You're going to be far safer there than you would be here because he wants you there. Perhaps you've heard a similar sentiment. Perhaps you've voiced, believed a similar sentiment. But friends, that, that cliche may work on a Christian coffee mug or bookmark or cross-stitched on a pillow, but it wasn't true for Jesus. It wasn't true for the apostles. It wasn't true for countless Christians throughout history, and it's not true for countless Christians today. And God has no patience for even our decaffeinated versions of prosperity theology, which indicate that, which, which imply that Health and safety are downstream from the favor of God. And a lack of health and a lack of safety are downstream from something else. Maybe a lack of faith. Maybe God forgetting about us. No, in the, one of the other Gospels, Luke 21, Jesus promises, I mean, just listen, listen to these words. You will, not you might, he, he, he promises, you will be betrayed by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. They're going to hate you. They're going to betray you. They're even going to kill you. And not a single hair is going to perish. It's like, what? If that's not a contradiction, what is? But it's not. Justin Martyr in the second century must have been reflecting on this 
very passage, these promises from Jesus, which seem to be in such tension with each other when he said, they can kill us, but they cannot harm us. I love that because only a Christian would say something so crazy. The promises sound contradictory, but they're not. Beloved, God has promised us many wonderful things, but physical safety is not one of them. Following the Holy Spirit may well lead you, land you in greater physical danger, but you will be spiritually alive and eternally secure. The Spirit deploys us into the wilderness. But he doesn't abandon us there. Which is good because of point two. The devil strikes The devil strikes. Verse 13, And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. In classic Mark fashion, this is a far briefer summary than we find in Matthew or Luke. If you want to read the longer accounts of Jesus's wilderness temptation, you can find that in chapter four of both of those other gospels. Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But Mark doesn't even tell us what the temptations are. We're just immediately thrust into the howling wilderness. You can almost feel the wind and perhaps some sand just whipping against your face. And the starkness of the scene and the starkness of his simple, bare description makes it all the more striking. But we have to ask, why does he include it at all? I mean, if he is going to skimp on the details this much, then why does he put it in there at all? Well, remember, this is connected to the story we looked at last week, and Mark is developing a narrative thread in which Jesus, at last, finally, is on the scene to succeed where his predecessors failed. You can keep your finger in Mark 1, but turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible, uh, one of the books of Moses, the books of the law. Moses is writing these words to the people of Israel as they are on the brink of the promised land, right about to enter and inherit this promise. And Moses offers them a reminder. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Remember, we saw that Israel enslaved in Egypt was called God's son. Remember that from last week? Israel, God's son. And then they were liberated. And what did they pass through when they were liberated? Water, the Red Sea. And then they were given the spirit. And then they were immediately sent and tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Israel is God's son, passes through water, giving God's spirit. 
into the wilderness for 40 years. And here Jesus in Mark 1 is declared to be God's son. And he passes through water at his baptism. And the spirit comes down and he's immediately sent into the wilderness for 40 days. This is no coincidence. This is no just neat little Bible fact. No, Jesus is embodying in himself the story of Israel as he relives the nation's experience and triumphs where they failed. We saw this beginning last week, but Mark is writing. Yes, he he writes as if he's in a rush, but here he wants us to linger just for a moment and to ponder this parallel because history yet again, is repeating itself in one solitary, ideal Israelite who is fulfilling the calling of the covenant people for them. But it's not just about Israel. We got to rewind the clock even further. Because the promise, and the reason it's not just about Israel, the reason we've got to go back even further is because the problem of sin is not limited to one nation in the Middle East. And therefore, the solution, because sin is a disease that has infected the entire human race, the solution must go all the way to the root, to all those ruined, not just by Israel's temptation, but by the original temptation. Tyson read it earlier from Genesis chapter 3. Adam in the Garden of Eden, underwent a time of testing, was exposed to Satan's assaults. He fell and he plunged the whole world, you and me, into ruin. And now Jesus is on the scene, not just as the true Israel, but as a second Adam who undergoes a time of testing, is exposed to Satan's assaults. But unlike his predecessor, he remains faithful. In the first temptation, Satan slithers in and humanity falls. In this temptation, Satan slithers in and the ultimate man, the pioneer of a new humanity, crushes his head. Again, this is not just a cool little parallel to pocket away. No, this actually has everything to do with your eternal destiny. Because what occurred in a Palestinian desert 2,000 years ago was a showdown of cosmic proportions. If Jesus wins, you have hope. If Jesus loses, you have none. See, we read this from our vantage point, and it's like, all right, let's just get, get to the other stuff because we know how the story ends. We don't feel any of the drama. We don't feel any of the suspense. Doesn't feel to us like the odds are in any way stacked against Jesus. It's like, yeah, it's a howling wilderness, but he always has home court advantage. He's Jesus. Now, if you're like me, by the way, maybe you've thought before like, The whole thing about how the author of Hebrews is like, you know, Jesus was tempted in every way just like you are, so he can sympathize with you and help you because of that. And it's like, um, I'm pretty sure one massive difference is that he was God. Like, that's the ultimate cheat code. (laughs) Didn't that make things a lot easier for him when he was tempted? 
Well, it's a good question. But actually, you know, the fact, if you compare the temptations of Jesus to the temptations you experience, and you think about it for a moment, you realize his temptations were far more intense than anything you've ever experienced because he never got the relief of giving in. I like how Rosaria Butterfield describes it. Quote, Jesus withstood the test even to the point of sweating blood. We cannot make such claims. We have not been tested that hard or humiliated that comprehensively. We are in the ABCs of the kindergarten of the school of temptation. By not falling into temptation, Jesus ran the whole race when we stumbled and collapsed in the first mile. Jesus wasn't just truly God. He was also truly man. And I, I don't think we can sense even a fraction of the stress that hell imposed on him over the course of these 40 days. I mean, he withstood everything hell and Satan and the demonic realm had to throw at him, and yet he endured to the end. Whereas we would have fallen out of the race on day one, he endured day after day after day until the end. And it's not just what Satan threw at him or what Satan throws at us, but when and how. My dad was a high school basketball coach for almost 40 years, and growing up, I would often see him watching tape, as he called it, okay, game film. And he wasn't watching film of his own team. He was actually, for the sake of improving his team, temporarily ignoring his team by focusing on the opponent, by studying the opponent. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 to do the exact same thing. He says, we should not be, be careful that you are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, lest he outwit you. If you study God, if you study the Bible, if you study salvation, if you study the doctrine of the church, these are all good things, but do you ever study Satan? You should. Because so much of fighting sin is actually quite simple. So much of fighting sin is just knowing the enemy's game plan. Now, there are dozens of strategies that Satan deploys. I mean, read or reread the screw tape letters if you, wanna, if you want to think about various strategies that Satan might employ. But I'm just going to give you four, kind of in light of this passage, four strategies of Satan. We're going to study our opponent for a few minutes. Number one, he'll tempt you where you're weak. He'll tempt you where you're weak. Where was Jesus tempted? Was Jesus tempted at his baptism? Was Jesus tempted at the synagogue? 
Was he tempted at the temple? No. He's tempted at the place where he was most vulnerable. Satan is not God, but he's also not dumb. He comes to us in our weakened condition in order to capitalize on that weakness. He comes to us when we're lonely, tired, stressed, weighing a big decision, uncertain about the future, deflated by discouragement, breathing a sigh of relief after a big win or a big accomplishment. He'll slither in when you are at your lowest and convince you you deserve to be there. And he'll slither in when you are at your highest and convince you you deserve to be there. The old Puritan Thomas Brooks in his book Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices says this, quote, whatever sin your heart is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. I know that's archaic language, but, but do you see what Brooks is saying? He's saying that Satan does not tempt us in a one-size-fits-all manner. His temptation is not generic. He custom designs his snares based on the particular tendencies he observes in you. Be alert. He'll tempt you when and where you're weak. Number two, he'll undermine the Holy Spirit's work in you. He'll undermine the Spirit's work in you. I mean, just think about the difference between what the Spirit wants to accomplish and what Satan wants to accomplish as it pertains to your sin. The, the Spirit wants you to hate your sin. Satan wants you to hate yourself. The, 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 the Spirit wants you to be so focused on Jesus that you forget about yourself. Satan wants you to be so focused on yourself that you forget about Jesus. The Spirit's like, hey, yes, glance at your sin, but gaze at Jesus. Satan is like, no, 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 no. Glance at Jesus, but gaze at your sin. And he will also undermine the Spirit's work by switching strategies on a dime. This is what makes him a tough opponent because Satan is quick and versatile. Think, think about it. I, uh, an author in the UK named Emma Scrivener helped me realize this. She, she explains that before you sin, before you sin, Satan will distract you from Christ's beauty. Right? He wants you to think that the sin is more attractive, more enticing, more worthy. So Satan, before you sin, will distract you from Christ's beauty. But immediately after you've sinned, oh, he switches schemes and he distracts you from Christ's mercy. Right? Before it's, ah, uh, 
Jesus isn't worth it. It's no big deal. Plus, he'll forgive you anyway. And after you sin, it's, how could you have done that? What kind of a person are you? What kind of a joke of a Christian are you? He'll never forgive you. He'll tempt you where you're weak. He'll undermine the Spirit's work in you. He will, number three, make you feel helpless in trying to resist. He'll make you feel helpless in trying to resist. He he wants you to believe that there is no way you will ever really change or grow or overcome this struggle or that sin. Because you're not a new Christian. I mean, some of you may be, and I'm thrilled you're here, but I know many of you are sitting there and you're still repenting of the same sins you were repenting of in 1993 or 2008 or whenever. Don't you see, Satan saying? You, you are a liability to the kingdom. Surely God regrets saving you. Surely he, if he could do it over again, he wouldn't. I, the Spirit's not at work in your life. Show me some proof that you have grown, that you've overcome that sin. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because the Bible crashes into our experience. The Bible crashes into our introspection. And it says, no, actually Satan was defeated on the cross. He is being defeated by the Spirit. And one day he will be defeated when Christ splits the skies to return and finally crush his head. The Bible also tells us, Romans 6, that God promises freedom from the power of sin. 1 Corinthians 10 God promises escape from the temptation of sin. Ephesians 6, God promises armor for the fight against sin. Freedom from the power of sin. Escape from the temptation of sin. Armor for the fight against sin. All of them are at your disposal, Christian, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know that the same Spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism and anointed him and empowered him and three years later would breathe resurrection life into his corpse is the same spirit who has taken up residence in your little heart. What, what more encouragement could the Bible possibly offer you for fighting sin? You have the omnipotent third person of the Trinity living inside of you but Satan will try to make you feel helpless in trying to resist. And number four, not only will he make you feel helpless in trying to resist, he will make you feel crazy for wanting to resist. He'll make you feel crazy for wanting to resist. Now this point wouldn't have made intuitive sense in the same way if I was preaching this sermon even 10 years ago. But we are in a cultural moment where just the idea of temptation, just the concept, 
is quickly vanishing as a coherent, meaningful category. I mean, the idea of desiring something and not having a right to it. Desiring something and suppressing that desire, saying no to that desire, is increasingly becoming something that is not just foreign, not just something that's ludicrous or, or for, you know, something for goody two-shoes moral people, but actually the script has now been flipped and that mentality has become something for immoral people. It, it's, it's viewed as immoral, wrong, to in any way deny your desires, to suppress your wants, to have a category for temptation. The world says that if you want something, you should have it. And the world also collapses temptation into the category of identity so that you are put in a box, pigeonholed, described, defined as nothing more than the sum of your temptations. The world's constantly doing this, trying to reduce you to temptation. Whether that's defining who you are by an addiction or by a pattern of sexual temptation, in the name of liberation and progress and freedom and love, the world is actually demeaning us and dehumanizing us by reducing us to our basest urges. And I use those words carefully. It is inhumane. It is dehumanizing to us to reduce us to our base, our, our basest impulses and urges because that's how we think about and treat animals. But we are not animals. We are made in the image of God and are far more than the sum of our desires or the totality of our temptations. Our status is based not just on our addictions or our sexuality. Our status is based on our standing either in Adam to whom we are united by our sin or in Christ to whom we can be united by faith. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, the most important thing that you can hear and absorb and leave understanding in a way that you did it when you walked in this door is that God is a generous and happy God. He is not a stingy miser in the heavens. As I said uh, last week, he, he's not a drill sergeant in the sky. God is a loving union of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created the world and he created, he populated it with human beings, not because of some lack in him, not because he needed a filling up, but because he loved so much that it was a spilling out. He wanted to share that joy, share that love, which he had experienced for all of eternity with human beings. And so he made us in his image and likeness to know him and enjoy him and worship him forever. But we have all broken that relationship, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. They broke it originally, and we, so we were born sinners by nature, but we've also become sinners by choice. 
who have built our lives around other things. We've sought satisfaction, meaning, joy, status, standing in other stuff rather than God. And therefore, we deserve nothing but his back forever. We deserve to be separated from him, severed from the source of life, which is another way of saying death. And yet, in the fullness of time, and this is what we've been thinking about last week and this week, God invaded history in the person of his son who lived for 33 years a life of unflinching, perfect obedience to the Father. In other words, the life you were supposed to live but haven't. And then he went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, absorbing the the justice in the wrath of God that was due to us. Not because God's a cosmic overreactor, but because he is a holy judge and we deserved to pay that infinite penalty. We deserve it. And yet God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, that is, die forever eternally, but will inherit everlasting life. If you simply, and here's the good news that that we have to offer you, which is unlike the news you'll hear in a, uh, in a Mormon temple or a Jewish synagogue or a Muslim mosque, the good news we have to offer you is there is no set of behaviors you have to do before you can get right with this God. You can be okay with this holy God. You can be pleasing in his sight today, this moment, if you simply in your heart turn away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. That's it. There's nothing magical. There's nothing immediately that you have to do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to merit it. Simply come to him with the empty hands of faith. And he will receive you. He will pronounce you righteous. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit to fight sin. And he will give you the promise of the hope of the world to come. Believer, one last thing on this temptation. This is not a number five. This is just one last thing I want to be clear. Temptation is not the same as sin. Don't assume that it's the same thing. Don't assume that when you're being tempted that you are automatically sinning. The distinction matters because it's not whether you're tempted, but how you respond. Proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. A a lamb might fall into the mud just as a pig does, but there's a big difference. The pig feels comfortable and at home in that mud in a way the lamb doesn't. The lamb's nature is not built for the mud. If you're a Christian, you will fall into the mud. But because the Holy Spirit resides in you, that is no longer your natural home. You will want to get up and get cleaned off. And yes, the next day you might fall right back into the mud. But the difference between the lamb and the pig is you know you don't belong there. And in your deepest heart of hearts, you don't want to be there. You want to be with your shepherd. 
At the end of verse 13, Mark mentions that Jesus was accompanied by angels and wild animals. Do you notice that? The angels, I think, make sense in light of the fact that Satan was a fallen angel. And so he shows up to, when he shows up to deceive and to attack the Son of God, his former allies, his former fellow angels show up as well. And it's an encouragement for believers, for you. I mean, Hebrews talks about how angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. But what in the world is up with the wild animals? I mean, if I've taught you guys anything, it's that Mark doesn't include any details that he doesn't have to. The guy writes like his ink is running out, and yet, do you know he's the only gospel writer? who includes this little detail. Jesus was with the wild animals, or literally the the wild beasts. I think that the reason he notes the the presence of these wild beasts is to highlight the the sense of danger that that Christ faced. Remember, this, this is not a scene around a table of hors d'oeuvres at a celebratory reception after his commissioning for public ministry. This is a howling, barren wilderness. It's a dangerous place. But I think there's an even deeper, more uh, subversive reason that Mark mentions, just in passing, the wild beasts. To use very modern parlance, which will be lost on some of you, Mark is subtweeting Rome. I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I mean. At the time of Mark's writing, remember I told you Mark uh, is the earliest of the four gospels written in the the probably late 50s AD. At the time of Mark's writing, Nero had already come into power as the emperor of the most powerful kingdom in the history of the world, the Roman Empire. And the Roman historian Tacitus, who, by the way, uh, was not a believer, but also in another place wrote about the death of Jesus at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So don't assume that the only things we know about Jesus are from the Bible. Tacitus is a non-Christian source outside of the Bible, which corroborates what we find in the Bible. But that's not in my notes. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote this about the emperor Nero's savagery toward the Christians at the time of Mark's writing. Quote, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of wild beasts, they were torn to pieces by dogs. Just a couple of generations later, a bishop from Antioch named Ignatius would be on his way to Rome to be martyred, to be killed for his faith. And on the way, he wrote one final letter. And in that letter, he uses this very same word, which is translated wild animals, no less than six times as he contemplated his fate. Mark is subtly and subversively looking into the eyes of his hearers, the eyes of his readers, many of whom would have been huddled in homes or in catacombs, fearing the wild beasts. Fearing that, yeah, now I'm, I'm in a home, now I'm in this, this cave, but one day I might be on the floor of the Colosseum. 
And Mark is saying, you won't be called to anything or to anywhere that your Savior has not already endured. He has been there. He has done that. He was surrounded by wild beasts. You are going to be okay. Stay the course. Well, in conclusion, we, we thought last week about how Jesus, the, the question, why couldn't Jesus have died for sins at the age of six or 16, right? Why, why is it that he was born sinless but not yet qualified to be our Savior? And, and we thought about how he had to run that whole marathon, that race of active obedience to the Father until the very end. And the first test that he had to pass in his public ministry was right here in the barren Judean desert. The death of Jesus is the white hot center of our faith. But we must never forget what happened three days later or what happened for 33 years prior. On January 1st, 1937, a theologian named J. Gresham Machen was lying in a hospital bed dying. He was a titanic figure in his day. He had written a book called Christianity and Liberalism. He had taught systematic theology. Imagine all of the hours in his life spent studying and teaching doctrine. And yet, what was the truth? What was the doctrine in his final hours that he was cherishing, that he was contemplating, that he was clinging to? Well, we know because he wrote one final telegram from his bed on New Year's Day, 1937, to his friend and colleague, John Murray. And the telegram simply said this, so grateful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And that active obedience had everything to do with facing and defeating the devil. And you know the devil himself is a wild beast, described as a wild beast. 1 Peter 5.8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But he ain't the only lion in the Bible. There is another lion compared to whom Satan is a little cat. And that cat is stronger than you. So don't underestimate that cat. Don't underestimate Satan the lion. He devours. But don't underestimate the one who holds his leash. He wins. Let's pray.